This week's episode is brought to you by FairyGodmotherTravel.com. Contact them at Communicore Weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com to help plan your next Disney vacation. Again, contact them at Communicore Weekly at FairyGodmotherTravel.com and tell them we sent you. Welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And you know, the last couple of episodes, we've been looking at some other theme park things, and we thought we'd bring it back around to Disney a little bit and look at one of the classic Disney animated films and explore its history a little bit because, Gosh, you know. There's so many of them. There are so many of them, but this is the choose? one of the originals. One of the most beloved, one of the most amazing. Okay, I, I think we can go with that. Okay, Which, we could, I guess maybe we can do that. I think is yeah. that enough of a tease for everybody so that they'll continue listening? I certainly hope so. I hope I don't stop the play button now, since would they're already admitted into the show. Would we ever even know? I well, yeah. I'm like keeping if tabs. If you stop a podcast, does the podcast then like not exist? Like. You know, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it? If a podcast is not listened to, does it ever actually exist? Or make a sound? While we're contemplating that, let's go to the history segment. It's time for the Park History! Sleeping Beauty is a story that's hundreds of years old, and it has images inspired by art, you know, from ages past, and a musical score from a century before it even came out. So, in short, it's got the magic and charm of the film can be described as an exercise in looking back to move forward. <laughs> that makes sense, right? Like Back to the Future. I thought you said a musical story. I was like, wait a minute, Michael Eisner didn't Oh, no, 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 not like that. No, no, okay. So the film premiered in 1959 and cost $6 million, the most expensive of Disney's films to date. Yeah. So Sleeping Beauty followed Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Cinderella as the third of Disney's princess features and was their 16th animated film. Uh, it, which is funny since the film focuses on Aurora's 16th birthday and it was directed by Les Clark Eric Larson, and Wolfgang Reitherman under the supervision of Clyde Geronimi. Now, like we discovered in our Cinderella episode, a number of variations of the uh, original story exist. Um, one of the earliest known versions can be found in Persfaris, which is a French book of short stories that first appeared in the early 16th century. And another rendition, uh, Sol Luna Italia, which means Sun Moon Italia, was notable for its graphically violent scenes and was uh, penned in Italy by a soldier named Giambattista Basile uh, in the early 1600s. And later in that century, French writer Charles uh, Perrault included La Belle et Bois Dorme, The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, in his uh, book Stories or Tales from Times Past with Morals, Tales of Mother Goose. But of course, those, uh, the Brothers Grimm, also had their own version of the tale with the story Dorn Ruschen, Little Briar Rose, in 1812. 
And while Charles Perrault's version of the story is credited in the film, it would be more accurate to cite composer Peter Tchaikovsky's adaptation of the fairy tale with a little bit of the Brothers Grimm. Uh, in Perrault's version of Sleeping Beauty, neither the prince or princess were given names, and the story did not culminate with their kiss, but went on to, you know, the couple's married life. And mortgages and, you know, kids and all that. Anyway, um, <laughs> so according to Perrault's story, they eventually did have children, a daughter named Aurora and a son named Day. And Aurora and Day almost met a horrific end at the hands of their, scre- uh, their screaming, well, mm. could be screaming, scheming could be screaming, yeah. paternal grandmother, whose despicable plans were thwart- uh, thwarted by the prince at the last minute. So if your son's name is Day and he does something bad, do you go, Dayo? Maybe. Or okay. are you having a good day? Or a bad oh, day? a bad day. So, all right. So anyway, so Tchaikovsky altered the story in his ballet, giving Aurora's name to the title character. The prince was named... Florimond. Uh, it is believed that it was changed to Philip in the film, and it was inspired by Great Britain's Duke of Edinburgh, who had married Queen Elizabeth II in 1947. Uh, back to Perrault's story, seven fairies bestowed gifts to the baby Aurora, while the ballet named six. And in both stories, before the last could offer her gift, the evil fairy, nameless in Perrault's story and called Carabasa in the ballet, warned of the princess's impending death on her 16th birthday when she would prick her finger on a spinning wheel. In both stories, the last of the good fairies then modified the curse from death to a deep sleep. But unlike Perrault's fairy tale, the ballet reached its finale with the wedding of Florimond and Aurora. The film adopted the ending as created by the Brothers Grimm, uh, the princess awakened by true love's kiss and the happy joining with her handsome prince. Uh, Their other major contribution to the film was the name they had given to their princess, Briar Rose. In the film, of course, this is the name given to Aurora by the three fairies when she's hiding from Angelina Jolie. (laughs) It's a good throw in there. A tie-in. Synergy! Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So the Disney team began working on Sleeping Beauty in 1951, and though the story had generally been decided upon by 1952, the movie spent eight years in development. Six of those years were devoted almost entirely to animating the film. This unprecedented length of time in producing the film was in many ways affected by the diverse paths the studio had taken. A great deal of Walt Disney's attention and time were caught up building a little place called Disneyland and producing the television series. While Disney's wonderful world of color, um, you know, it's also kind of ironic though, because it took Tchaikovsky only 40 days to develop his ballet version, the shortest amount of any time for any of his work. So, in some ways, Sleeping Beauty was the end of an era, and it was the final Disney film to utilize the ink-and-paint technique of creating animation cells. Uh, Additionally, Sleeping Beauty would be the last fairy tale to be adapted for a film until The Little Mermaid in 1989. It was also a film of innovations, as it was the first film ever to be released using the Super Technorama, which was a 70 format. Um, This process utilized utilized 70mm film, which is twice the size of the 35mm film used both before and since that time. And this new format created a 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio, meaning that the width of the screen for Sleeping Beauty was more than twice the size of its height. The subsequent wider screen allowed for more finely detailed art, with significantly clearer background pictures in particular. 
While visually stunning, the larger animation paper proved to be a challenge for the artists, who were used to flipping between pages in order to make the characters' movements look as realistic as possible. The uh, drastically increased size of the paper made the animation cells very difficult to maneuver, and so there were little mistakes here and there. <laughs> and though the story was similar in feel to the earlier two princess films, Walt was determined to make Sleeping Beauty more distinct. Uh, in order to move the genre forward, he looked to the past for styles of art and music. In terms of artistry, he wanted to reach back to the rich tapestries and paintings of centuries ago. So, the need for such detail was placed in the very capable hands of Evan Earl. Earl had worked on backgrounds for Lady and the Tramp and Peter Pan, along with a number of Disney's short films, and was responsible for the medieval flavor of the film, because I love a good medieval flavor, especially Me on barbecue. Too. A little bit of chocolate, too, in there. Just, yeah. Yeah. So Earl was not only in charge of the film's lush scenery, but also had creative control over the animators, which was pretty much unheard of at the time. Usually, it was the animators who made the major decisions in stylizing all the studio's films, with Walt, of course, having the final say. So the animators, you know, they had a really big dislike of this, and it, it made its way all the way back up to Walt, who eventually decided with Earl because he wanted the design of the film to lead the style of the animation rather than the other way around. And part of Walt's desire to emphasize the design was in reaction to the United Productions of America, which was an animation studio whose most famous character is Mr. Magoo. And uh, UPA had been founded by three former Disney artists, Stephen uh, Bosustow, David Hilberman, and Zachary Schwartz, following the 1941 Disney strike. The animation style concept of UPA avoided the realism and three-dimensional art that Disney was known for. It basically followed the artistic trends of the time and stressed um, minimalism and modernism over more traditional pictures. So rather than changing his view to match theirs, this development kind of spurred Walt to make his scenes even more highly detailed and sophisticated. And he essentially wanted the animated pictures of Sleeping Beauty to be a film of moving paintings. And the use of color also played a big part in the conceptual design of the film. The designers wished to provide a stronger visual contrast between good and evil, so for the palace, the forest, and the cottage, as well as the good people and fairies of the kingdom, bright colors such as vivid reds, blues, pinks, emerald greens, and yellows were, were used. Maleficent, her castle, and her minions were painted in darker hues, you know, browns, deeper greens, and shades of gray and black. And we did check, and there were at least 50 shades of gray that were used. Yes, yes, there were. Not really a good tie-in. Um, <laughs> like Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty was the first, uh, was, I'm sorry, Sleeping Beauty was first staged with actors performing the roles in a studio, complete with costumes, which were designed by Alice Davis, and tons of props. Uh, with Cinderella, it had been a cost-saving measure for the financially struggling studio at the time. Uh, the scenes were enacted, were enacted, filmed, and then traced onto animation paper to avoid having to correct and redraw any of the errors later on. Yeah, in Sleeping Beauty, this was done so that animators would not have to imagine the characters' actions, but would be able to see the events firsthand. Structures were built to represent the palaces of King Stefan and Maleficent, as well as the fairy's cottage. Stairs were even constructed to form the mountain from which Prince Philip battled Maleficent. Another aspect of uh, looking back to move forward was the use of Tchaikovsky's uh, ballet music, written a century before. Now, his music had already appeared in a Disney film before, uh, with uh, his music for The Nutcracker appearing in Fantasia a decade earlier. 
So early in the production process, Walt asked staff composers Sammy Fain and Jack Lawrence to create original songs for the film, which resulted in I Happen to Have a Picture, in which the two kings show off paintings of their children the same way that fathers today would pull out, you know, pictures from their wallet. You mean like Instagram? Or their smartphone now, basically. Oh, yes. gotcha. It works, though. So, Riddle Diddle is sung as the fairies prepare to make the new dressing cake for Briar Rose's birthday. Go to Sleep, a lullaby song, as the fairies cast the enchanted sleep upon the entire kingdom. And Aurora and Philip's romantic duet, Once Upon a Dream, the only song to be included in the final picture and based on a waltz from Tchaikovsky's ballet. After seeing the gothic design of the animation, Walt realized that the traditional theater-style movie songs did not serve the art in the story well. So he requested that another staff composer, George Bruns, rework the ballet score uh, more, from more than 60 years earlier. And most, mo- most of the film soundtrack used the original ballet music as originally written. Uh, Bruns had to make some adjustments in order to accommodate the animation, sometimes repeating motifs and other times adding some flourishes and other minor, minor adjustments. So all of the films, uh, all the songs in the finished film were taken directly from Tchaikovsky's score with lyrics added by Bruns and his staff. For example, Hail to the Princess Aurora is a lyricized version of the ballet's march, while the movie's other songs were derived from dances within the ballet. The soundtrack was recorded by the Berlin Philharmonic in a new sound studio in Germany and using, at the time, state-of-the-art equipment. Both Mary Costa as Aurora and Bill Shirley as Prince Philip made their Disney debuts in Sleeping Beauty. The two even auditioned together to ensure that their voices would blend well together. The classically trained Costa would go on to perform in a number of operas around the world, including the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City and the Royal Opera House in London. And Bill Shirley would later take on another significant singing film role where he would once again be heard, but not actually seen, because he dubbed the, the singing of On the Street Where You Live in the 1964 film of My Fair Lady. Also making her first appearance in a Disney film was Barbara Jo Allen as Fauna. She would go on to provide the voice of a maid in The Sword and the Stone in 1963. Like Alan, the other two actresses voicing the fairies were highly regarded for their work in radio, while also having impressive Disney resumes. Verna Felton, the voice of Flora, had been heard as Miss Jumbo in Dumbo, Cinderella's fairy godmother, the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland, and Aunt Sarah in Lady and the Tramp. She would return to Disney in 1967 to voice yet another elephant in The Jungle Book. When audiences first heard Barbara Luddy's voice as Meriwether, they probably recognized it as Lady from Lady and the Tramp as well. And future work for Disney Studios for her would include uh, Rover in 101 Dalmatians, Mother Church Mouse and Mother Rabbit in Robin Hood, and Kanga in the original Woody and the Pooh films. Disney Studios also brought back another successful veteran, Eleanor Audley. And Audley, who had been wretchedly wonderful as Lady Tremaine and Cinderella, delved back into darkness as perhaps the most despised of all Disney villainesses. Maleficent. Uh, Bill Thompson, who had voiced the White Rabbit in Alice in Wonderland, Mr. Smee and Peter Pan, and Jock in Lady and the Tramp, portrayed King Hubert, uh, Prince Philip's father. And he also would reunite with Disney many times, as Ranger J. Audubon Woodlore in the TV show Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, and later as Uncle Waldo in The Aristocats. And when the film opened, it wasn't a resounding success, as was hoped. Reviews were mixed, and Walt himself was disappointed with the final product. However, financially, it was second in box office earnings that year, losing out to Ben-Hur. Unfortunately, the box office returns were not sufficient to offset the excessive costs of producing Sleeping Beauty, which contributed to Disney Studios taking a significant loss that year. 
you know, even though it wasn't that successful the first time around, subsequent re-releases in later years were much more successful and resulted in building a strong following for the film. However, in terms of marketing, when the movie first came out, you know, news was much brighter because there was a hundred different items of Sleeping Beauty merchandise that were created by more than 50 companies, including dolls, uh, jewelry, recordings, comic books. And if its ultimate success can be judged by the affection of its viewers, then Sleeping Beauty will always be recognized as one of the more loved Disney triumphs. I mean, it's a great film. It's a gorgeous film. And it really is a living painting. Exactly. And it's got a great castle at Disneyland. Heck yes. Heck yeah. So we want to know what you think about Sleeping Beauty or if you have any interesting stories that relate to the film or the making of it. Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Mickey Mouse, Emblem of the American Spirit by Gary Apgar. And this book was an incredibly fascinating and well-researched title. So uh, it's put out by the Walt Disney uh, Family Museum, and they've got a big vested stake in this book. So um, I was kind of excited about it, but still wasn't sure what to expect because I like Gary's other book that we reviewed, The Mickey Mouse Reader, where he goes into the history of the mouse. So... This book is divided into a couple sections, but really three sections overall. And the first one looks at the birth of Mickey Mouse and actually goes through and posits the different scenarios based on the time and the history of the company and how the company actually promoted Mickey Mouse. Because, you know, we all know the story of Walt and Lily, you know, losing Oswald and coming back on the train and Lily deciding to call him Mickey. Well, that wasn't the story that got around for the first couple of years. So they do a great job with that. Um, It's an incredible history that goes beyond what we've seen in the typical biographies of Walt Disney, as well as what the company's put out itself. You know, I was really glad to see that Gary Apgar was able to go as deep as he has, especially with the cooperation of the Walt Disney Family Museum. Uh, We also get into uh, a lot of the material in later sections about how Mickey was welcomed, you know, so to speak by the public. And it's hard for us to realize how spectacular a creation that Mickey Mouse was almost right from the get-go. You know, today we see things like the Star Wars phenomenon or some of the other superstars we have, but along with Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks, Mickey Mouse truly eclipsed them all. And it's sort of hard for us to put that in perspective, but that's something that this book does so well. Uh, There were a lot of moments in the book that really led me to think about the history of Mickey Mouse in a lot of different ways, specifically uh, talking about how he was treated in the world, as well as how the Disney Studios was treated artistically, which was neat. Uh, We see the mouse as a corporate entity now, but we have to remember in the late 20s and 30s, he was one of the biggest stars on the planet, and everybody wanted a piece of him. So there's a lot of discussion about the merchandise of Mickey Mouse, and it's always interesting to compare what we see today with like I mentioned like the Star Wars merchandise because apparently the stuff that we saw in the 30s with Mickey Mouse was just as just as crazy um, you know it made a huge difference of course in the company's bottom line and Apgar talks about that it sort of helped keep them afloat in a little of it it also saved a lot of other companies from bankruptcy so the last sections of the book because the first part really talks about Mickey Mouse and his development and his history were really the hardest for me to get through. And there's 
nothing wrong with what Apgar wrote at all. It's just not a subject matter I'm as familiar with. Really what we look at is Mickey is seen through the eyes of art and other artists and by cultural critics. Um, it was very fascinating to me but very heavy and I had to go outside this book to learn a little bit more. Um, as I mentioned, there's nothing wrong with his writing style in the book. It's just I didn't have a high level of interest or knowledge about those sections, you know, about postmodern art or art. I don't even know if art is what I like. <laughs> there's no telling. So still, uh, this book is going to stand the test of time, and it sets the bar very high for academic work on Disney and the Disney company. It's very impressive and offers a level of research that we rarely see. The first third or so of the book is fascinating, and I think a lot of Disney history fans and Mickey Mouse fans are going to enjoy it, and it's more than worth the price just for that. And the study of Mickey's origins based on research versus what was promoted and changed through the years is undeniably fascinating. And if you have an interest in Mickey as art or how he was seen culturally in the latter half of the 20th century, then you do really need to pick up a copy of this book. But it is a big tome very well researched, very well illustrated. I don't know how Apgar was able to get a lot of these illustrations, but it is going to teach you a lot about Mickey Mouse, and I still highly recommend it. It's Mickey Mouse, Emblem of the American Spirit by Gary Apgar. What we liked, what we didn't like, he's in the booze! 60-second review! So for this week's 60-second review, we're looking at Disney Pixar's The Good Dinosaur, which was just released on Blu-ray, and I did see this in the theater. I know Jeff didn't, and I sort of recommended Jeff not to see it in the theater. Mm -hmm. I waited until the Blu-ray. I didn't think it needed to be a full movie. So you know, that's an interesting <laughs> point. It could yeah. have been one of their Pixar shorts, and I would have been perfectly happy with it. Yeah, even, even like a 25-minute holiday special would have been really cute. I love the concept behind it. You know, for those of you that didn't know, uh, the meteorite missed the planet Earth that killed the dinosaurs all those 60, 70 million years ago. So dinosaurs exist with a very early version of humans, and one of them gets lost and gets adopted by a dinosaur. Which, and, I mean, is interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's we've seen stuff like this before, and I have to admit, you know, my, my 11-year-old at the time loved it and enjoyed it, um, but apparently if you take him to the movie and just buy him popcorn, he likes anything. But... <laughs> Um, I just walked out of it going, it could have been a lot better and a lot shorter, and I would have enjoyed it more. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like a notch below all the other nearly flawless films that Pixar has put out, which, exactly. I mean, it's fine. It had all the, the Pixar elements, you know, the humor, yeah. the heart, the adventure, good morals, great visuals. It just felt yeah. like a copycat of other Pixar films. They didn't really offer anything new to me, you know? Yeah, it was sort of, somebody had mentioned it was sort of like Cars 2 meets a Bug's Life yeah, I can see that. So, yeah, you had these emotional moments. And it's, it's yeah, it, it wasn't up to the spectacle of Inside Out, as beautiful as that film was, or WALL-E, or The Incredibles. You know, those are classic films. It was pretty well documented that, like, halfway through the making of this film, that there was a change of the guard, so to speak, where the yes. original director uh, was moved, demoted, and another director came in, and, you know, the story was completely re reworked. And I think it really showed. I mean, it hurt the yeah. film in the end, I thought, because... I, I don't know what the original story was. I can't say if it was better or worse, but I, I just, I don't know. I don't it was know. called The Bad Dinosaur. It was wore called The Bad jacket. Dinosaur. You wore a leather jacket and dark glasses. No, On a motorcycle. Um, so I, yeah, I think overall, I mean, I, I think it, it's an enjoyable film. 
I think the little kids are really going to love it a lot more just because they're not as sophisticated as Jeff and I are. Fair enough. Maybe. But anyway, so uh, tell us a little bit about the extras with well, the discs. Before I say that, I, oh, I just need yes. to say that the film doesn't look good on Blu-ray. It looks spectacular. If nothing else, ah. it looks amazing on Blu-ray. Yeah. So good, good on point. them. Good point. Yeah, it did. It did. There were some gorgeous, like the scenes with the fireflies. Yes. Things. Yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Water looked good too. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, anyway. But yeah, some of the the extras. I mean, they're pretty good. Obviously, the short film, the Sanjay Super yeah. Team. The short films nice. are always great. Yeah. They, they, they played that in front of the film in the theater, right? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. It was good. I liked it. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, they had one True Lies About Dinosaurs, which was like a very quick run through of some of the fictional stuff in the film, which was you know cute <laughs> enough on its own. Um, yeah. I really enjoyed when the Pixar employees were building makeshift dinosaurs from donated goods. Um, that was a neat little extra that really, I thought, added to it. Um, there was a look at character construction uh, digitally and how nuanced the, the characters were, which was really mm-hmm. good. Um, they went to a real cattle ranch to to base what the T-Rex characters became in the film, which I thought was interesting. And, I mean, yeah. that was about it. You know, deleted scenes, audio commentary, not a whole heck of a lot else. Um, another short film. Uh, dinosaurs are having fun for the camera in, like, a five-minute second. It was weird. I don't know what that yeah. added, but... <laughs> you know, it, it was it was good. I did enjoy the extras, I, I do have to say. Yeah, but so overall, I think, you know, if you've seen it and you did enjoy it, definitely pick up a copy. Um, if you're not, if it doesn't sound good, rent it first, maybe. Try to get I a think copy it's definitely it, rental. So. Maybe get it from the red box if you're not yeah. entirely sure. I think I think it's definitely worth a rental, but I don't think it's one of those classic Pixar films that you're going to want to watch again and again. But yeah, it might skew well for a much younger audience, though, too. So, you know, make sure if you got kids in the house, if they, they can end up buying it. Yeah. So. You never know. So wasn't too excited, but that's we're gonna, okay. We're going to call it the meh dinosaur. Eh, the meh. Two tiny T-Rex thumbs up, maybe? Yeah, okay, because they're small. Because so they're, they're small. not worth as much? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's probably what it is, maybe. All right, I'm okay Gosh, with that. I hope a T-Rex didn't hear me. So. Okay, so this week's 60-second review was The Good Dinosaur. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Sunset Boulevard, located in America's favorite half-day park, Disney's Hollywood Studios, is a late 30s, early 40s representation of the street, basically around the time of World War II. Now, beside Catalina Edities, you're going to find a Victory Garden, which is easily identifiable by the gigantic sign that says Victory Garden. Um, There's also a scarecrow wearing a gas mask, which is kind of creepy, but also kind of completes the setting, too. Is he your mummy? He may be my mummy, Doctor Who reference. Um, Yes. Victory Gardens were planted in the United States during World War II to help prevent food shortages. Um, you know, because canned vegetables were being rationed and trains and trucks that would have otherwise transported produce were put in use for transporting uh, soldiers and weapons. So during that time, Victory Gardens were responsible for 40% of the vegetables grown in the United States in 1944 alone. And in fact, the entire outdoor seating area along Sunset Boulevard is dedicated to the World War II era, with everything from the signs lo- along the buildings to tiny pieces of memorabilia in the center of the uh, condiment stand. So it's kind of kind of cool little snapshot in time there. Yeah, but Disney doesn't grow vegetables there, right? No, they do not. Okay, okay, good. And and this week's prize is not homegrown vegetables, which I mean could be good. I guess it depends on how good. we ship them. Well, also, I don't know if Teresa Corey from Fairy Godmother Travel has a green thumb or not. Maybe. She may not have a she Fairy Godmother have... Travel victory already. 
That's true. So, so we're obviously at the end of the show, and this is the time for the year of a million or so limited time cadets prize winner announcement. And before we get into it, just remember there's still plenty of time to enter this giveaway contest. Sort of, just email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and birthday. So, of course, we can mail something out to you. But this week's winner, who's going to receive a wonderful prize pack from Teresa Corey at Fairy Godmother Travel, is Lexi S from Naperville, Illinois. Hooray! Yay, so hopefully that'll be an awesome prize pack and I'm not sure if it'll be a vegetable or not. Maybe Probably she not. can add a fake vegetable in it. Ooh, that might be good, like a vegetable? Uh, uh, okay. Sure, we'll go on, okay. so okay. Obviously guys, we've reached the end of the episode, so thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Yeah, no matter how you listen to or get the show, leave us a comment, leave us a rating on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. You can always email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to enter the contest or send us some really cool information. And you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imagine Nerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, you can always leave us a message on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And don't forget to visit, visit communicoreweekly.spreadshirt.com to pick up some incredible Communicore Weekly t-shirts. And of course, we have, you know, Communicore Weekly Cadet membership cards left over. We have some stickers. If you want some, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can visit patreon.com slash Weekly. Find out how you too can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.